I am the ghost of Judy Dench, um, and I'm feeling very confused right now. Yeah, I would be too. I don't know who that is. You don't know who Dame Judy Dench is? No. I'm personally offended that you don't know who M from James Bond is. Ah, M. Get some real eye rolls over here. So I'm Eddie Stienekamp. Yeah, my name's Kristen Royce. And we are... Surf's Surf's up. up! Yeah, bro. Yeah, hang ten. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, thanks for hanging out with us today. We've got a beautiful guest here, all the way from the sunny shores of the better part of Europe. What used to be, <laughs> what used to be Europe has declared itself not Europe. Well, better is also debatable here. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. So we've got uh, Matthew on board today. Welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, welcome. The book we are doing today. Oh, yeah. Let's do that first. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've heard that it helps to introduce the topic of conversation. Right. I thought we were just going to talk about Matthew all day. <laughs> so we are we are doing a very famous but very underread mm. book called uh, The Satanic Verses by Salman Rushdie. Rushdie? Um, Rushdie, Rushdie, I don't know. He's Indian. We are going to be flip-flopping with pronunciations. You need more of an R. R- Rushti. <laughs> and I, I notice your head's moving at least correctly. <laughs> Get the whole stereotype going. But yeah, um, we will be doing this book. And um, the reason we got Matthew on board is because uh, the two of us, Kristen and I, know absolutely nothing about... Islam, really. It's true. I converted when I was six, but it only lasted three months until uh, I got my toys back. And uh, my closest, you know, encounter with Islam is uh, working for an Indian guy and being grateful for the two-hour lunch on Fridays. Which is more than you can say for your uh, kindy job now. Yeah, yeah, that is brutal. But uh, let's not bring back the trauma <laughs> just yet. Right. So we got Matthew on board because he has a bit more experience with uh, this sort of thing. It's more in his wheelhouse. Mm. Mm. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Something? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I am from the UK mm-hmm. um, and I've lived in Korea now for four years and I lived for a year in Lebanon and I've traveled through the Middle East. I've lived in Iran for a bit and I also did some work at an Iranian film festival in London. Mm-hmm. So as with the two of you, I've read the book, but I've not like studied the book so much, but I'm very familiar with the consequences of the book being published and the repercussions and sure. the clash of civilizations it seemed to have brought about in the late 80s and early 90s. Can yeah, I ask sure. you a question? What got sure. you interested in uh, the Middle East in general? Well, I was a film student, so I studied film at university and I watched a lot of Iranian films like in the 90s like an early millennium Iranian cinema like really was mm. like the, the art house cinema it was popping off as it was the kids <laughs> say. <laughs> right it was um, a lot of like Iranian film directors were winning a lot of awards at like Cannes and Venice and um, it had its moment around the early millennium and I just became interested in like watching in these films and I watched a lot of them and I went on to study them and from that like I at least became very interested in the politics of it Mm-hmm. and the country's kind of recent history and its revolution. And, you know, you can't really avoid these things when you study the art that comes out of the country. Now, were you, you were watching the 
films with English subtitles. Yeah, right, right. Did, did you um, study when I, the language? Yeah, I did. When I went on to work at the film festival, mm. I, I studied the language a little bit, but I'm not like conversant or fluent sure. in it. But I learned enough to it helped me get by. When do I they was... speak Farsi anyway? Yeah, they speak Persian. Yeah, Persian or Farsi. Yeah, okay. Yeah, but the 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 alphabet with the addition of like three or four characters, the alphabet is the same as Arabic. Okay. Yeah. Okay. The Persian Arabic script. Do you hope to go back there to visit and do you have friends? Um. um... Yeah. Yeah. I. I mean, I'd love to go back to Iran. It's difficult for me to go back as a British passport holder. Mm-hmm. British people now have to go on organized tours. As with Americans and Canadians, yeah, Americans are super popular in Iran. I, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Among like Iranians, they are really they are. Yeah, like but obviously with the government, they insist that the two imperial powers, like the states and Britain, they insist that their citizens are accompanied by like a guide. And mm. I don't want to do that. Like I don't want to have a chaperone. Yeah, it is a bit infantilizing and restrictive. Yeah, and like that, and also. You're then having to pay for that guide. That guide is um, is endorsed or maybe supported, paid for by the government of Iran. Mm. So that's a way for your money to sort of go towards that government. It's yeah. the North Korean situation, right? Well, I mean, different, right. but sim- similar, right? Mm. Moral problem mm. for right. some people. So it would be a problem for me. So I wouldn't go back to Iran right now. But Lebanon, I was in a year or two ago, okay. and um, I would go back there. I love. The I had country. some uh, Iranian friends in mm. in Korea. Uh, mm-hmm. They've left now, but they were mm-hmm. studying the PhDs in various mm-hmm. sciences and things. And they're really fun to hang out with. Mm-hmm. Can't generalize anything from that, but they just seem like hip guys. My experience from like meeting like our Muslims in I lived in Tripoli in Lebanon, which is a very it's kind of the Islamic city of Lebanon, mm-hmm. kind of Sunni Muslim population. Mm-hmm. Among like Lebanese, it's known to be in great contrast to Beirut. Like Beirut is more cosmopolitan and mm-hmm. like. You know, it used to be called the Paris of the Middle East. It's quite like Western. Tripoli is seen as a more Arab city. So I lived there when I was in Lebanon and I taught the Syrian refugees who, who lived there. And anyway, living like with some, some Syrians and Lebanese people, we talked about like the satanic verses mm-hmm. and Salman Rushdie. And I think like even among like Muslims I knew there who were not very devout, they would drink a little bit and you know, they they were not, I'd say, like, strict, you know, like, mm-hmm. I'm talking as a Westerner, like, yeah. our understanding of what a strict adherent of Islam is. Islamicist. Yeah, yeah. Very like, fundamental. Yeah. But they still were deeply offended by the satanic verses and by what Rushdie wrote. Do you think that so, they read it? Or do you uh, think no. they maybe just read, like, maybe <laughs> this, a couple pages yeah. here and there that got widely shared? But this is the interesting thing. It kind of goes back to what Eddie was saying. Yeah. Like, with the 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 book, like, people, I think, know more about the... You know, the, the book itself has got lost right. in the in the, in the the controversies totally. and, the, and the repercussions and, yeah. of course, mm-hmm. the fatwa. So while, you know, most people have not read the book, they know about it. And they kind of know what's or they think they know what's in it or what it deals with. I shared that clip of David Letterman with you guys. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah. He's like, oh, well, yeah. Last weekend I read Satanic Verses. I, right. I don't know what the stirrup's all about. You right. know, and he's like, you seem like an all right book to me. And he's like, no, you didn't. You did not read that. Yeah. <laughs> There's no way. And of course, like the man who really made the book famous, Ayatollah Khomeini, you know, it's really known by the lay person yes. because of the fatwa. Mm-hmm. So... Ayatollah Khomeini, of course, didn't read the book. He didn't right. read it because it wasn't published in Farsi. Khomeini didn't speak English. Yeah. 
So, yeah. Reading this book made me question whether I speak English, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> How did the book go for you, Eddie? Yeah. Well, uh, full disclaimer, I made it about 20% into the book, uh, which, to be fair, is over 100 pages. That's like 75% more than most people. Yeah, yeah. It's mm. not like I gave up a chapter in. I really gave it a, the old college try. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I just, I just couldn't. I just couldn't. Can you tell us a bit about the author? So, Rushdie was born in 1947 in uh, what was then known as Bombay but mm. is now obviously Mumbai. Mm. He grew up primarily in India, but he uh, studied in England for his university degree, where he got a bachelor's degree in history. After that, he lived briefly in Pakistan with some family, and then he moved permanently to England. Uh, he's been married four times, Divorced guy. four times. Yeah. <laughs> well, he's, he's, he's popular with the ladies. Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, in spite of his, you know, massive baldness. And, I mean, he's got, <laughs> he's got quite a character. Yeah, and he had that, that, that interesting thing around his eyes. Yeah. Mm. He actually had to get surgery to, um, to stop the drooping in one oh. of his eyelids. Mm. Okay. According to him, it was becoming difficult for him to open his eyes. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'm reminded of that uh, Leonard Cohen quote, my reputation as a ladies' man is a bitter joke I laughed at in the thousand nights I spent alone. That's my kind of prose. <laughs> <laughs> so he was brought up in a Muslim family, but they weren't incredibly devout. So yeah, they would go to the mosque for the major yearly events but it wasn't a daily or a weekly thing for them it's like in the u.s people go to e easter sunday yeah 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 because yeah, yeah, right, they yeah. have to right so it was it wasn't mass. it was a fairly like secular ish mm. kind of upbringing mm. for him yeah. mm. and um matthew here's a here's a question regarding this mm. How common is this kind of upbringing in mm. the Islamic world? Because yeah, in the right. West, the loudest voices you hear right. are generally the more fundamentalist types. Right. It's right. like I've, I've obviously met Muslims in my life who weren't mm. that devout, mm. but I've never really thought of how... Because, yeah, in, in Christianity, you meet a lot of people who are Christian in name only. Mm. Yeah, yeah, right. And how how common is this? How does this compare to right. Islam? I, I think and I think like this was common back in the sixties and seventies in places countries like Lebanon and Iran. Saudi Arabia is kind of a different matter and the Gulf mm. states are a different matter. But like Lebanon, Iran, like especially among in the middle classes and the merchant classes, people would have a more secular upbringing mm. and People with the means could afford to go and study in like Western Europe or States. I think the Iranian revolution in 1979 is seen as a sort of a turning point mm. where at least among the Shia Muslims, there was 
a degree of sort of people becoming more religious. Mm, doubling like, down. Yeah, 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 okay. yeah. And of course that... So, revival. Yeah, kind of a, it's seen as a revival, yeah. Islam or Islamic clerics can kind of, could engineer this, this revolution against like a Western-backed monarch and kind of get rid of him, this really brutal dictator. Obviously there were other factions in the Iranian revolution, but, you know, so it kind of, it, it led to this revival among the Shia Muslims and interest, a renewed interest in the religion and the power mm. of the religion and people wanting it, wanting religion more in their day-to-day -day life. And because of the Iranian revolution, then Saudi Arabia became more um, interested in spreading its version of Islam throughout the Islamic world. So like through the 80s, Saudi Arabia pumped a lot of money into schools and mm. education institutions, right. kind of spreading their version of Islam. So by the 90s, you have a completely different picture from the 70s, mm, you know, mm. where people are attending mosque more, people are t attending religious schools, and just the religion being like more forefront. Well, you know? I, I mean, that's a general picture, but it's yeah, kind of... Yeah. It takes us into a lot of history. Right. It's not a simple <laughs> question to answer. Yeah, right, yeah, right, you, right. Your oh, point of, of uh, some kind of analogy, I think, mm. bears, bears up. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, Islam has uh, mixed pretty well with like local cultures as it spread out right. throughout, mm, throughout mm, its history. Mm. But that's been a serious problem for people within the religion that wanted to revive and, and carry on more fundamental interpretations right. of what they mm. thought, you know, most uh, Muhammad, his mm. life and his actions mm. were about. Mm. So there's always that tension right, mm. between mm. the local culture and they're bringing in their influences within the, it's like the Pope, you know, all the yeah. different kinds of Catholicism spread out. And mm. I, I think it, I would just say it takes a lot of energy to sustain hatred, intense mm. hatred. Mm. And I don't think most people do that unless they're like desperate. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of easier just to go along. And so uh, Rushdi worked for a few years as a copywriter while he was writing Midnight's Children, which would uh, be published as his second novel. Uh, he has written 14 novels to date. Uh, Satanic Verses is the fourth. He's also published uh, a bunch of collections of short stories, essays, and even some children's books. Mm. He won the 1981 Booker Prize mm. for Midnight's Children, as you mentioned. Mm. Uh, some other awards that he's gotten include the Golden Pen Award, the Hans Christian Andersen Literature Award, the Pen Pinter Award, the Swiss Freethinkers Award, and he was knighted in 2007. So it's... Sir Salman Rushdie, to you, thank you very much. Um, Do you think with all of these awards, like he's like, and the crit critical acclaim his books have received, that maybe he's, I think the term is a, a kind of a writer's writer, like thought, maybe, yeah, like maybe he's like in that vein of, yeah, someone like Joyce, right. Or, Right. Uh, I don't know. Nabokov is another one. Vladimir Nabokov. He, he does mm. take mm. fiction seriously. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He doesn't write escapist literature. Hmm. He writes things that engage with serious ideas, hmm. and he he's not he's not shy about 
being misunderstood. He'll, he can write cryptic things, right. as we've seen in this book. Yeah, <laughs> as we yeah. will see. Right. Yeah. Um, I I personally don't really like the the distinction some people make between mm. quote unquote high literature right. and you know pop literature or right. the canon pop right. literature. Yeah, the canon to me feels a bit iffy because. Mm. The thing is, if you read Jim Thompson, one of my favorite authors, mm. he write he wrote like you know stuff that on the surface seems very pulpy and very, uh, you know, kind of he was paid by the word and he would just mm. churn out these these murder mysteries. Mm. Jack London is another one. Jack read. London, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but if you if you pay attention to Jim Thompson's stuff. He exposes so many things about the psychology of guilt and mm. fear and rage, mm. impotent frustration, and it's just so beautiful and so profound, really, mm. that he's gotten the nickname the Dime Store Dostoevsky. Mm. But he never really won any awards or was he wasn't really noticed by critics. So, so Rushdie says on this interview in, uh, that I mentioned with uh, C-SPAN hmm. uh, book notes that uh, you can write a great book, hmm. but we, there's no way to know if it's going to be an important book hmm. over, yeah, right. over the right. long period of time. Yeah, so, yeah. so these kind of these kind of thoughts that we have about Right. We measure things. He also talks about the death of the author. He's like, no, I'm very much alive and part of the thing that I wrote. And for him, mm. in the circle of authors that he respects mm. and knows personally, mm. I'm sure, uh, they're very much alive too. And, and he says they're very aware of of how they're writing and, and why they're writing certain things. So, mm. And he wants, he wants us to keep that in mind. Mm. 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 Right? Yeah, put away your shovel. <laughs> I I wrote this and I know why I wrote this. Yeah, and, yeah. Mm -hmm. He's also pushed back against the idea that some of his characters are autobiographical. Mm. He's said that his characters are all a part of him in the sense that they come from him, mm. but he's not writing about himself generally. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. So that's an interesting duality perhaps could be the right word mm. of being very much in your work and your work being very much of you but also making that distinction between yourself and your work well, mm. well people asked him like well why why didn't you write about jesus why did you why did you pick on muhammad mm. it's like well i came from an islamic mm. culture mm. this is what i know this is mm. what i was born into mm -hmm. But, you know, you can't just pick it up and be like, oh, I, I see how that connects to his personal life mm. or something. You know, there's mm. there's so much creativity mm. that people have when they're writing things. And then right. the, the characters take on a life of their own, usually right. end up writing themselves. Mm. Yeah, That's yeah. What they say, right? Eddie, you were saying about the, the canon, like, you know, that you don't like the distinction between like, you know, high literature and, and, and pop literature and pop fiction and, you know. And the idea of a canon being suspect, like, you know, 40, 50 years ago, like Rushdie probably wouldn't even have been in the canon, you know, as a Muslim writing about, you know, Islamic history and Islamic 
um, parables and stories yeah. like that wouldn't have been recognized among like Western critics. Well, it is the Western canon. Exactly, it's, right. It doesn't include Chinese right. works. And it didn't, yeah. it, but it's it didn't include Korean. like someone like Rushdie with this yeah. very well, complicated background of, of mm. being like a, a Muslim from, from Bombay. And like, he would mm. still call it Bombay rather than Mumbai, you know. Mm. Like mm. this guy who who's then steeped in this Islamic history, but also studied in England. Like this is someone who didn't fit into like the canon. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Edward Said, yeah, who sure. was mm -hmm. yeah, a good friend of Rushdie's. And of course, he wrote his book, um, Orientalism, in like 1978, mm -hmm. 79. You know, Rushdie is writing his books in the 80s, like Shame, Midnight's Children, uh, Satanic Verses, in this post-colonial like, context. So there's now an awareness of the complexity of like people where people come from, yeah. the languages they speak, and, you know, that it's not just a simple case of Western Europe. Asia, Islam, Christianity, but Rushdie is showing that, that these things are, are, are much more complicated mm. and complex. Yeah. And I think what's also relevant to this is the fact that he's not just an Islamic writer, but the fact that he's an Indian Islamic writer. Right. Because right. India is right. an incredibly multicultural society. Right, right. And there's lots of moving parts there, and there's mm. lots of friction between different cultures. And there's, mm. I don't, I can't remember, but they have a ridiculous amount of official languages. Yeah, right. And for someone to come from a, a very multicultural country like that and then mm. move to a country that's trying its best to not be multicultural. <laughs> I, I don't know, we, the, the, the images of England that you see, right. there's this on-the-surface acceptance of, oh, London is a multicultural city, right. but right. we all still eat fish and chips. Right, right, right. And especially yeah. at that time, like in the 80s, this mm, is Thatcher's mm. Britain. You know, Margaret Thatcher was prime minister, and she was always talking about boat people. You know, the notion of like people, you know, very like anti-migrant, anti you know, and just... Uh, nasty piece of work i don't know if i can yeah yeah I my opinion on mrs thatcher you're but, in good company but, <laughs> yeah he but, calls um, her miss torture right mrs book? torture yeah, yeah yeah and she was indeed for for many a british person just yeah awful awful times but yeah that that was britain at the time like you mm, know, and you mm. had not just like margaret thatcher and the conservative party but also the national front like even further right mm. of margaret thatcher <laughs> you know, running running around the country and and I'm just... trying to imagine something further right than yeah, right. Margaret Thatcher <laughs> here, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna do my best to lay out this book. Mm. Uh it clocks in at around five hundred pages or mm. less, depending on which version you have. It doesn't read as a straight narrative. It's mm. it's divided up into nine parts. Uh, which are composed of three plot lines. Uh, it, mm. it did take him five years to write the book. It's no small task for him mm. either. The main plot line features two major characters, uh, Gabriel Farishta and another guy, uh, Saladin Chamcha. Did I butcher that horribly? Yeah, but it's all right. We're all white here. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Gabriel is a play on Gabriel, mm. right? 
and uh, they're both they both are coming from India. Mm. And uh, Saladin, he's reduced his name from Salahuddin to yeah. try and be more anglicized. Right. So, yeah. Uh, Saladin was a an Islamic uh, a hero among is is a hero among many Muslims. Salahuddin. Yeah. Salahuddin. Cham- Chamchawala. Yeah. The first plotline basically follows their story as they're uh, they're immigrants coming to England to London. And they're on a plane, and the plane gets hijacked, and uh, there's a lady with a bomb. Things go wrong with the hijackers. It blows up, and the the book opens with them falling from the sky. And uh, as they're falling, Gabriel starts singing and starts flapping his arms, and uh, Saladin, like, hugs him. And they just somehow magically float down. And the way Rushdie describes it is like, this isn't supposed to happen, but it did. <laughs> so immediately we're in this like magical world, but yeah. but not too magical. And it's very I, factual. I believe Saladin, Saladin even keeps his, his bowler hat yeah. on his head right, throughout right. the whole uh, fall. The book follows their relationship, mainly in, in the first plot line. Uh, Gabriel is a is an actor. He's a, He's been in a lot of Bollywood films portraying uh, religious characters and he's done pretty well for himself and then he kind of disappears and then he shows up at this hotel eating a ham sandwich renouncing his faith yeah and then uh yeah and then he ends up on the plane whereas saladin is trying to flee this iron hold of his father never feels like he's accepted by his dad Mm. and he's a voice actor Um, he's not a a handsome fellow or anything Mm. Mm. um so he's trying to Constantly trying to become more British to mm. assimilate mm. In, in his his he's trying to lose his language his tongue. So yeah, we have to talk about Gabriel. He's he starts having these dreams, and we're never sure if he's dreaming or he's having a psychotic vision breakdown. Mm. Right, and he's he seems to be able to connect to other characters in history. Right, uh, most famously uh, Muhammad, which is uh, Mahund in the book, mm. which mm. it mm. means. Mm. Well, yeah. What, what I, was that supposed to mean? Devil? Yeah, yeah. And also, I think okay. it's a derogatory term from yeah. a mullah, like a religious leader. It's also, it, yeah. Right. That's quite... what the West called them. Yeah, that's one of the dream sequences. Another one is Ayesha. She's this uh, butterfly diva yeah. <laughs> that's also struggling with insanity. And subplot one, subplot two. Yeah, those are the two main subplots, which we're going to return to quite a lot. Most of this takes place in London. Mm. Gabriel's struggling with his relationship with Alleluia Cohn. Oh, yeah, yeah. Who's right. this uh, the hiker, m- mountain the climber, yeah. and she's got flat feet and suffering. Yes. But she's trying to save him and trying to help him, and, and he's struggling with his issues. And, and right. he's, like, wandering around the city, mm. blowing trumpet horns, and, like, <laughs> just picture the weirdest guy you've seen on the street. Mm. Yes. And then mm. imagine him preaching to you and yes. like he thinks he's the voice of God. Well, there you go. That's who this character is at times when he's really off his meds. Mm. <laughs> so they're trying to keep him medicated. He's in and out of movies and mm. they're trying to get him back into the movies because mm. he's a real cash cow. That's basically Gabriel. There's a lot more we can say. When, when, the, when the washes up onto the shores in mm. England, mm. he's taken in by uh, Rosa Diamond, who mm. is like, she's going through her own kind of hallucinations <laughs> of like regret and yeah. sucking him into her world. And, yeah. you know, these are the only two survivors of the plane crash. Mm. So 
it's a it's a miracle, right? Mm. <laughs> uh, and then Saladin, as he's washed up on the shore, he starts taking on goat features. He turns into mm. Satan, yeah, Satan, yeah. yeah. And uh, the police take him to custody, and then he's upset with um, Gabriel because Gabriel doesn't say anything like, "Hey, I know this guy." Mm. Just lets him be taken, mm. and then the police rough him up. Yeah, which shows some, definitely some racism towards oh, yeah, yeah. foreigners. Right, is, mm-hmm. think, right. What mm-hmm. he's trying to say there, and uh, yeah, eventually he ends up in rehab, mm. like getting rehabilitated, and mm. he's still losing his. He's growing taller and crazier, <laughs> and he's like up in this attic of of an Indian family, and there these two daughters are trying to take care of him, and mm. he's kind of grows closer to them, and uh, eventually he breaks down and he he just like all this hatred just comes out of him towards mm. Gabriel. He's like, I'm going to kill that bastard, you know, <laughs> and he go, comes back to human form. He regains mm. his identity by becoming honest about who he is. Yeah. So what I, what I see with these two characters is like Saladin's becoming this ugly version of himself. Right. Uh, by re- trying to recreate himself into something he's not. Right. He becomes a devil. Right. Uh, Rushdie talks about like, Trying to be, be a creator is taking on the role of of a kind of devil. You're right. stirring up. You're you're bla- it's blasphemy. You're right. trying to do something that is for God to do. Right. You know, right. just be mm-hmm. yourself. Mm-hmm. Right. And by doing that, he takes on this crazy appearance. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other hand, Gabriel, he's not assimilating. Mm. He's trying to take all of these selves, personalities that he has, and mm. like trying to keep himself together somehow mm-hmm. but you know maintain the past of greatness of what india is and all its complexity but right bring it here this assimilation theme or assimilate or not to assimilate mm-hmm. was very much a theme like of, of the 80s among uh, british indian novelists also british indian um filmmakers as well um filmmakers from like the subcontinent or heritage from the subcontinent do you know hanef Qureshi? is it hanef Qureshi? Nef Qureshi, he was good friends with Rushdie. He made a film in the 80s with Daniel Day-Lewis, My Beautiful Laundrette. Anyway, the the distinction between Gabriel and uh, Saladin in the book is very similar to what plays out in that film between the two brothers, one wanting to assimilate into like becoming a very British like trader, basically a yuppie, like a Thatcherite yuppie, mm. and the brother who's a poet still wanting to write in, I think it's in Urdu, you know, and to retain his language and to retain his like heritage. Definitely, I think this is a theme. Right. It's so very much of its, it's time. It's the yeah. struggle that they feel. Yeah. It's also how they're perceived and the reactions right. they have within right. the immigrant community in right. London. Right. And how the authorities are reacting to them. Right. And and it's mixing in their Muslim Islamic traditions and in some Indian things. There's a lot of Bollywood references in right. the book as yeah. well. Right. Mm-hmm. So the novel goes on and <laughs> on and on and on and on. Where did you stop reading, Eddie? Where did you stop? Uh, did you probably read? about halfway through the first Mahound sequence. Oh, yeah, oh. right. Right. Okay, so after Saladin decides, okay, I'm going to kill this mofo, Gabriel, yeah. he starts prank calling him. Yeah. And, <laughs> and taking he's a voice actor, so he's mm. able to take on all these different voices mm. and he's like dialing up it's it's savage. He's dialing up this guy who's all drugged up and can't tell 
white from black. Yeah. Planting all these insecurities about mm. that guy's lover. Mm. Oh, wow. It's really just like psychologically tormenting his mind, yeah. right? Yeah. And messing him up. And then yeah. later he realizes what had, had, what had happened, right? Mm. This all comes to a head. Mm. Um, a lot of things happen here, but just to wrap up this main story plot, uh, mm. They end up going back to India, and uh, Saladin, who's had this problem with his father, mm. becomes basically reconciled with his father, mm. who is dying, mm. and he's always wanted this magic lamp that his father possesses, right? Mm. And finally gets the lamp, but no sooner than he does, Gabriel yeah. shows up with a gun, and he's like ready to, sh- <laughs> ready to kill him. <laughs> And he's and he's just murdered his uh, Alleluia Cone yeah, and this guy Sisodia, uh, who is mm. like a movie producer. Right. And anyway, he's yeah. it's just like jealous, idiotic rage, and, yes. he, and then he kills himself. Yeah. So, yeah. There was a spoiler alert there. <laughs> <laughs> now you don't need to read the book. Yeah. Now you don't have to. Yeah. As we said, we're for a what thirty-five-year-old book. You know, we're reading the books on your dad's shelf, as we said from episode one. Um, yeah, so that's the main plot line with a lot of holes. It's a real Swiss cheese freeway yeah. view. Let's talk about the subplots. So as Gabriel's dreaming, he's connected somehow mysteriously with uh, Muhammad, mm. Mahound. And this is, you know, Mahound is starting the religion submission or Islam. And he's facing serious opposition from the authorities in the city. Mm. And they're forced to flee. And as he's having his vision, he's tempted to accept more than one God, mm. okay, mm. the daughters of Allah, mm. right? Mm. The, and this is what is known as the satanic verses, right. The, right. the apocryphal, very dubious right. writings in Islam. Right. Um, but it's kind of an alternate history, like, mm. did Jesus have a wife? And Lots of children, mm-hmm. you know, like maybe some version says that, but you would mm-hmm. you would piss off Christians if you mm-hmm. started saying that to mm-hmm. them. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a yeah, there's one apocryphal story that uh, that's about how Jesus killed a little boy when he was himself a child, mm-hmm. and then when the family complained about it, he just killed the family. Oh, lovely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder why they would take that out of the Bible, though. Hmm. You know, beats me. Was this before or after he became a zombie? (laughs) (laughs) I think it was before the zombie thing, but after the time-traveling thing where his flesh transports into your modern-day mouth. Quantum leap? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Right, so... Yeah, all his daughters, he, he realizes he makes a mistake and he's, it wasn't actually Gabriel, it was uh, it was a devil. But actually it was Gabriel in the book. Right. It's like, it was the same guy, it just changed your mind. And then 25 years later, uh, another part of the dream comes back and, you know, the religion is thriving mm. and then Mahound is, is returning back to the city mm. and one of the other characters, his name is Baal, mm. B-A-A-L. Yeah, yeah. And he is a poet mm. who made his living commemorating assassins. He's like, oh, shit, crap, Muhammad, he's coming back for me. And <laughs> he, he takes refuge in a brothel called The Curtain. And it's like all these, all these curtains literally, you know, separating this kind of labyrinth-like interior where, you know, it's a brothel, right? 
he takes on the role of Muhammad Mahund in the book, and mm-hmm. he he has the twelve prostitutes right. who become his wives, wives and they yeah, take on the wives. same names. Spicy. And then it's it's a selling feature, right? So then all the guys, of course, yeah, who wouldn't want to sleep with one of Mahund's wives, right? Right. right. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and then I I heard a reference like the curtain also is a reference to the veil. Yeah. Right. Like the hijab. Right. Like the right and the covering off of, of yeah, the it's a bit of a yeah. dig on that. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, Mahun comes in and destroys the the temple of the false goddess a lot, who is referenced several times in the book. Right. It's... Right. Which I think is a play on the name of God. That was what when I read commentary on the book. Okay. Yeah. So the second subplot takes place in this uh, fantastic realm village, Tit Titlipper. What Titlicker? What? <laughs> Mom's a titlicker. <laughs> uh, there's, there's like a really brief vision where he sees um, the imam. Gabriel sees this imam in mm. London. He's like, hey, you mm. got to take me to Desh, which mm. is Iran. Iran, yeah. And I got to go kill Ayesha, the god who's right. being embodied by the goddess of Elat. Right. It's just like weird, really brief thing that almost yeah. doesn't fit in the book. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I me yeah it doesn't it, get referenced again <laughs> it's just like i gotta take a dig real fast yeah it it's complicated it, it must be <laughs> but it's, it was a very heavy-handed like yeah. direct reference to the imam i think what what he's because we have the dreams or the, the maybe the waking state kind of dreams which are set around the time of the founding of islam mm-hmm. the religion of islam in the, in the 600s um in the seventh century and then we go where well, we have the imam in London, which is clearly, very, very clearly yes. the Ayatollah Khomeini, which is interesting because when people talk about the book and how it upset like the clerics, they didn't actually talk about this part of the book. Right. That mm. it was actually Rushdie really like head on, like taking, it's the on, most taking explicit on reference to the Ayatollah Khomeini. Yeah, yes. but people don't talk about that. Right. But I think he's trying to draw, trying to get the reader to think or the, the knowledgeable reader maybe to think about, you know, people who are aware of like Islamic history and, is, and Islamic contemporary politics, mm-hmm. trying to get them to think about the founding of the religion, the emergence of the Prophet Muhammad, and then fast forwarding later to the 20th century and I guess the revival of Islam Which... under, you know, the, the Shia clerics and so let's talk about the uh, yeah the second subplot, mm. which uh, introduces this new character Ayesha, Mirza Said and Michal is this husband and wife. He's a he's a property owner doing mm. well. Mm. He's looking out in his garden. Suddenly sees this <laughs> girl who's like mm. eating butterflies. Yes, just chomping yeah. on butterflies because that's good for vitamin A. I think <laughs> something mm. and uh, vitamin B. Yeah, and, and he and, you know. He gets a bit thick in the pants. Yes. And yeah. <laughs> and they take her, they adopt her. Yeah. And then it's fine. Like, he's got the secret desire. Well, she has some kind of weird special power. She's kind of going insane. And mm. she's, like, got butterflies swirling around, eating butterflies, all this. Yeah. And she diagnoses his wife with cancer. If we don't get her to Mecca soon on this giant pilgrimage, which I'm going to take her on, mm. she's gone her. So... She plans this uh, pilgrimage to Mecca, and Mirza Said yeah, is this. Yeah. I think he's probably the closest character. Uh, I think there's maybe two characters in the book that mm. really might be considered 
like Rushdie, like him speaking right. his, his own ideas. Right. Like Salman, who comes up in the Muhammad dream. I don't remember. Salman is the guy that comes back and mm-hmm. he's like criticizing. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mahun, but right. talking to Baal. Right, he's right. Like, and he's, he's talking like, to Baal, I, but it's, it's critical of He's Baal. very critical. He's like, yeah. he's he, yeah. all the things he's saying are very self-serving. Right. So I, I felt like that's right. definitely Rushdie, Rushdie talking. Rushdie himself? Hmm. Well, like, I mean, oh, yeah, it sounded like that right. to me. Uh, right. And then also this character, Mirza Said, is very like, yeah, he's very, he doesn't believe anything. He's a doubting right. Thomas, everything. Right. Anyway, so they, they, they go on this pilgrimage and he, he follows them along in his Mercedes. Mm-hmm. She becomes progressively more violent mm-hmm. to the point where she's like, <laughs> she tells this cleric, yeah, go ahead and you can mm-hmm. kill that baby. It's fine. <laughs> yeah. And then so then more people leave the faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they end up just charging into the ocean, into the sea. Yeah. And nobody knows whether they actually survived or not. But, mm-hmm. you know, as he's in the hospital, there, there's people that are in the hospital that saw this, witnessed it, said mm-hmm. that, yeah, we saw the waves open and then we saw them close. Mm-hmm. They're like, we know what we saw, but mm-hmm. then the bodies are washing up on the shore anyway. So mm-hmm. believe what you want. There's conflicting stories yeah. here. That's the uh, yeah the parting of the Arabian Sea section um, that basically completes the that part of the dream sequence. Um, mm. That's the book. Yeah, more or less. Mm. Very sloppy, I, horrible version of no, a person I, who read it once. It's definitely and the book I read didn't catch so. very much <laughs> I, of it. I read, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, if you when you summarize it like that, it sounds like a very exciting book because there's mm. you know. Mm. A lot that happens. Mm. Well, there is a lot that happens. It's just, just kind of like sorting through it all. It, mm. it's, yeah, it's work. Mm. It's it's a kind of work mm. to get through this. I think. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, I have a lot of quotes. Mm. I I think this book is just full of really great quotes. Mm. Oh uh, yeah, for themes and things mm. that we're going to be talking about. So mm. maybe we'll we'll get into that in a minute. So one one quote I think that summarizes what this book is trying to do is comes up a few times in the book and it's any new idea is asked two questions when it's weak will it compromise and the second question how do you behave when you win yeah you you see that kind of thing a lot with um what I'm thinking now of is I can't remember if it was the third or the fourth season of The Wire, which follows the politician, what was his name, Carchetti, who starts out as this very idealistic politician who really wants to make a difference. And the the current mayor is this really corrupt, scummy, scummy person. Mm. And Carchetti is like, oh, well, I'm different. I'm new. I'm fresh. I'm going to bring my youthful energy to this position. And as he gains traction and gains ground, he keeps having to compromise on his policies and his ideals. Mm -hmm. And slowly, slowly it starts eroding him until at the end of the day, he wins the election because he gets the support from everybody around him. Mm -hmm. But only because he compromised so much that he has essentially pulled out his own teeth. And then when people try to confront him about it, he lashes out at them and he justifies what he's done. 
So this is a, a new idea, right? Compromising too much and then behaving like a complete asshat <laughs> when he wins. Yeah, I think this book is really uh, Salman Rushdie trying to start a serious conversation with mm. the world of Islam. Let's step back and talk about your history. What what are you and how did you get here? How does newness come into the world? This is a thing that he re returns to quite a bit. A rebirth, you have to die before you can be reborn into right. something else. I mean, the, mm. book, the book opens with them falling out of the air. Right. There's a good quote from right in the beginning. It's, how does newness come into the world? How is it born? Of what fusions, translations, conjoinings is it made? How does it survive, extreme and dangerous as it is? What compromises, what deals, what betrayals of its secret nature must it make to stave off the wrecking crew, the exterminating angel, the guillotine? Is birth always a fall? Do angels have wings? Can men fly? Okay, I'm going to pick a small nit there and say that those last two sentences of that quote were unnecessary and could have been trimmed from the novel. <laughs> <laughs> do angels have wings can men fly well, they are, i just threw them in there i mean they are intent indented yeah 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 but still like i would have if i was the editor of this book i would have looked at rushdie and go okay you can keep this in if you can explain to me what it means <laughs> well do it's, angels it's a, have wings it's a foreshadowing of the novel mm. and themes yeah. that are going to come up again and mm. again mm this idea of newness is birth a fall in what sense like they're they're getting dropped into a, a, a new culture mm. and they're, they're they feel mm. like they're dying but they're being reborn mm. yeah, they're falling yeah. out of something else mm. and you're going to see that theme again uh as far as angels having wings can they fly mm. or not do angels exist i i think you know gabriel that's the whole point of the gabriel character is is he an actual angel or is he psychotic I don't yeah, know. okay, fair enough, I guess. But <laughs> I still for me for me this fair feels enough. like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, you know. I don't think it's that it just feels like it's a, kind of in a similar vein. But I I might be wrong. I might be just trying to justify not finishing the book, you no, know. No, no, no. I think like I look at Rushdie like as a writer very much I mean he's not Arab and he's not writing in Arabic, but I think he's of the tradition of the Arab, the Nahda, which was from the, the late 19th century, kind of the Arab awakening, like this intellectual movement that tried to bring about a conversation among Arabs and particularly Arab Muslims that, okay, maybe we can, you know, maybe newness is okay. Because I think for like a lot of Muslims, the understanding of Islam is that this is the final religion. Muhammad was the final prophet. Yes, the prophets that came before, like Jesus, they are recognized as prophets in Islam, mm -hmm. but Muhammad was like the seal of the prophets, the mm -hmm. final one. You know, Islam is the word from God. The Quran is the literal word of God. And there's no, among maybe more among Sunni, Sunni Muslims at least, there's mm -hmm. no tampering with that or changing that. There is no sense of newness. That is the word of God. And I think Rushdie falls into the tradition, which I think comes out of the Arab awakening of the late 19th century, that actually maybe we can sort of try and, and create something, you know, we can breathe sort of new life into our culture. We can maybe go about reinterpreting things. 
Yeah, mm. I don't know if that kind of relates to you. It totally <laughs> resonates uh, with what I've been reading in this other book, the Oxford History. Uh, right, right. He talks about uh, right. Islam's uh, encounter with the West and modernity right. and its struggles. If we look at the history of mm. Islam in the beginning, mm. Muhammad was able to take power mm. in 20 years. Mm. And that was it. And they spread out, you know, over a couple hundred of years. And it, 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 it fractured mm. in, in various ways, mm. but in a way that Judaism never could. The major tenets of the Jewish faith like, mm. were written while Jews were in exile. Or right. then after the temple was smashed right. to get some of their important documents. Whereas in Christ Christianity, Jesus died and they're still waiting you're saying about like islam's interactions with the west yeah how does it deal with modernity what's its future right. it doesn't seem like a, a religion that's comfortable being ruled it's a religion right. that wants to rule and it's like well we can be benevolent but just give us the power back that we need and so now there's all this tension um, ever since the shia believe that ali the cousin of muhammad was unrightfully passed over and so yeah, they right. keep looking for right. that lineage to be reestablished, where right. the Sunnis are more looking towards, okay, just follow the correct doctrine as it's been laid out, and we'll yeah. be fine. Yeah, we, we have no idea how that's going to be reconciled. Going back to your point earlier, like, is there a moderate Muslim? There's a big tension between the modernist mm. sect of the modernist phenomenon of Islam and the kind of fundamentalist, like mm. the revival, they always mm. want to mm. revive it and come back to the roots and mm. get back to the Sunnah. This is what this is what Muhammad said. This mm. is what he did. We have to do that, mm. right? And so, uh, you know, Christians ask, like, what would Jesus do? Mm. They're looking at what would he do in this situation if he was here? We imagine that, and then the answer can change mm. over the centuries, and it mm. has. Mm. Yeah, yeah. With Islam, no, it's... What did Muhammad do? Mm. And they're trying to establish through historiography. It's mm. of course there's biases and problems with that. Mm. But mm. what did he do? And mm. we should still be doing that. So, but I, I think like the moderate like fundamentalist distinction is like it's kind of very much a Western Westerners distinction. And I think like Rushdie is he doesn't like fall in, into the line of thinking of moderates fundamentalists. Um, uh, uh, modernists. Uh, okay. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> I did say moderate there. Briefly, I thought, yeah, yeah, but... yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. But then, like, still, like, I think, like, the notion that there are modernists within the religion, and then there are fundamentalists, people who want to stick to like the fundamentals of the doctrine. You know, well, look at uh, look at Iran. Right, right. It's a, it's a complex society. There right. are parts of it that right. seem fairly secular, but that's all under this massive umbrella of the Ayatollah. Right. right. But even like that system, we see it outside in, in the West as like mm. being a very like religious um, Islamic government. But even that government has drawn on like secular like, elements, you know, like its constitution is like drawn from like the French constitution after the French revolution. And um, so like, even there you can see like complexity, you know, sure. like, and, and it, yeah. So uh, this is a quote about faith. And I personally read this as being applicable to more than just Islam, but mm. faith, religious faith in general. Mm. He grew up believing in God, angels, demons, afrits, jinns, as matter-of-factly as if they were bullock carts or lampposts. And it struck him as a failure in his own sight that he had never seen a ghost. Now, the reason that stood out 
for me personally is while I wasn't raised to be very religious mm. in my family, I was raised in a very religious community. And I was ostracized to some extent for my non-conformity to this specific doctrine, you know, because I wasn't a Protestant Christian who went to the Nether German Reformed Church, I believe would be the English translation of the church's name. But I saw doubt in a lot of people because they would parrot the talking points and there would be this assumption that, oh, this is what it's like. God exists. God does this and God operates in this way. And there's the people with the answers and there's the people with the questions. Yeah, that's and a good even, way. Of but even as it. you're embracing answers, you more questions. If you're a thinking person, yeah, he doesn't just and, shut off once right. you have yeah, faith. Yeah, right. it, The faith is like always responding to those doubts. And right. That hence apologetics. We yeah. we're always giving a justification of the faith and that kind yeah. of thing. But yeah, this this last section of this quote, it struck him as a failure in his own sight that he had never seen a ghost. So you felt like an imposter because you're in this community of people that seem they're acting as if they have seen ghosts. Yeah. Like, well, when's, when do yeah. I get to see it? <laughs> And then the ones who were kind of honest would also express sentiments like this. They don't feel like they are enough of a Christian. Did you guys go to church? Yeah. What, what kind of church did. did you guys go to? Church of England. I was confirmed. So I went, I went to church up until I was about 14, 15. Yeah. My mother was quite, my mother like, member of the Salvation Army, and then, like, yeah, so growing up, like, church was I went every to Sunday, the, and, yeah. I went to the Church of America. America, what? I'd never church heard. Church of America. 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 <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. What are its doctrines? What does it entail? Mm. <laughs> well, we have dollars. Uh, we need oil. Yeah. And, uh, and you have guns. And we're willing to print dollars to get the oil. <laughs> <laughs> destroy if you can't and we'll destroy you if you don't sell it (laughs) (laughs) like i said i was raised fairly secularly so um for a while there was church fairly often like every week or every two weeks or Mm. so but then by the time i was about 12 Mm. my mom once sat me down and said listen if you don't want to go to sunday school you don't have to anymore and i was like Fuck, I can sleep in on Sundays. <laughs> Rushdie's Rushdie's yeah. parents said, just just kneel here and yeah. stand up. Yeah. That's it. You're cool. done. <laughs> yeah. I've got a, I've got another quote for you. Uh this is in the context of uh Saladin talking about one of his coworkers, the mm. voice actors. Mm. And she's Jewish and he's Muslim. So yeah. water and oil here. <laughs> and um we should get married sometime when you're free, Mimi yeah. once suggested to him. You and me, we could be the United Nations. You're Jewish, he pointed out. I was brought up to have views on Jews. So I'm Jewish, she shrugged. You're the one who's circumcised. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> yeah, for the one intactivist in the room here. <laughs> intactivist. I um, have uh, another one here that right. um, yeah. it's just a silly little yeah. one-off that I thought was quite funny. Hmm. 
It was a hard fate to be an American abroad and not to suspect why you were so disliked. Indeed. Mm. <laughs> One has often felt such things. Would you like to talk about experiences uh, of me? It'll be another podcast. <laughs> I've heard of this thing, um, Canadian while abroad, that some Americans just tell foreign people they're Canadian so the people will... Yeah. I was advised when, yeah. on my first trip to Europe to like yeah. put a Canadian flag on my right. backpack. I'm like, okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So I've got a bit more serious quote. Uh, when he's when Saladin is being reconciled to his father, uh, you know he's coming to terms with his identity. He turned into Satan. Now he's back yeah, into yeah. he's he's come back. He's he's accepted his old name, and so he's having these thoughts. And um, here's the quote: Saladin felt hourly closer to many old rejected selves, many alternate Saladins, or rather Salahuddins which had split off from himself as he made his various life choices, but which had apparently continued to exist, perhaps in the parallel universes of quantum theory. Okay, so when I read that, I thought of Paul Oster's book, 4321, mm. which is like mm. a thousand pages of just, <laughs> you know, there's four <laughs> narratives going on, and it's mm. cycling you back and forth mm. between alternate versions of the same character and your your brain is just not handling all of the details mm. but that alternate selves thing there was a good film that did uh that had a similar premise called mr nobody mm. with uh, it was directed by Jakub van Dormael and starred jared leto as something like 15 different versions of the same character right that is the 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 fragmentation of identity mm. is an interesting thing for me and i'm gonna relate this to my own experience once again like as an afrikaner my lineage is very complex and very troubled in in different ways like my my great-grandparents were in english concentration camps mm. and then they grew up and voted for the apartheid government right it's it's very difficult to reconcile these different elements of things you know these these facets of my history my personal history and then my country's history and my my ethnic people's history and then it comes to my personal history and you know it's like there's this discordian quote that goes in five years' time, a complete stranger with your memories will be inhabiting your body. But don't worry, in another five years, they'll be gone as well. <laughs> yes. It's like nobody is ever really the same person throughout their life. Yes, I've been a few right. different Christians. And, and then how do you, like, if you were to, I've, I've thought about this a lot, actually, is if I were to walk down the street tomorrow and run into someone I knew from high school, would they would they recognize me because you know physically i've changed a lot i've gotten a lot fatter but then also if we were to hang out what would how would the dynamic be because they're a completely different person and i'm a completely different person how would we reconcile that and what would it really mean that we used to be friends in high school i'm sure you know people um uh, that haven't changed all that much or if anything they've just this is going to sound like I'm implying it's a bad thing. I'm, I'm not. Uh, but they've basically stayed in their community 
and grown up into their parents' views mm. and mm. don't really have much interest in challenging themselves outside mm. of that. They're mm. comfortable. Mm. Um, for me, I, I, it was kind of a boring... I, I want the challenge. You know, I want to mm. grow into, right. into new versions of myself and, right. and just because I'm curious. You know, right. what, what can I be? Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I got another quote that ties into uh, the things that we lose when we travel to a new place. Mm. And then the, yeah, here it goes. Mingling with the remnants of the plane, equally fragmented, equally absurd, there floated the debris of the soul, broken memories, sloughed off selves, severed mother tongues, violated privacies, untranslatable jokes, extinguished futures, lost loves, the forgotten meaning of hollow, booming words, land belonging home. At least you're sitting here speaking your native language. That's, there is that. Because <laughs> the, one, the one thing that, that jumped out there in that quote for me was untranslatable mm. jokes. If you were to know me in Afrikaans, it would be something completely different. Mm. Right. It's, it's just so interesting for me, you know, coming here and operating primarily in English. It's like my thoughts take on different patterns. And uh, I catch myself thinking in English sometimes, hmm. which I never used to do. I got maybe one last quote. Motherfucking dreams. <laughs> Cause of all the trouble in the human race. Movies too. If I was God, I'd cut the imagination right out of the people. And then maybe poor bastards like me could get a good night's rest. That's good. And he, go, he goes on to say it's, uh, it's bugs or drugs. Bugs or drugs. <laughs> you just messed up head or just, yeah, drug yourself into submission. Mm, it's mm. like this guy's really, you know, as he's walking around the city, you're inside of his head the whole time. And that's what makes this character so endearing. It's like mm. you feel really bad. Just like, wow, mm. this guy is really suffering. Mm. And... Mm. I don't know. I, I had that feeling. Mm. I had kind of strong empathy for the character. So that, to me, that made it a, a well-written book. Yeah, the, the characters are definitely well-developed. From the bit that I read, I could definitely... Uh, like, my problem was never with the characters. The characters. I think the protest started in India and in Pakistan. And then by early... 1989, the Saudi Arabian government had issued some sort of statement coming against the book, against the author. And then by February 1989, Khomeini issued his fatwa, basically saying that the writer of this book, people involved in its publication, should be killed because this book is against Islam. And any proud, I think, I can't remember the exact wording of the fatwa, but it was, you know, proud Muslims of the world should kill this man for offending their religion. Mm -hmm. The prophet. I just pulled up the fatwa. Yeah, right. So and it was you can you can read that. Brave, if you'd brave, like. <laughs> brave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was basically calling on any brave, self-respecting Muslim to kind of kill the man who affronted their their prophet. And, right, and, and this religion. is part of jihad, or or one idea of jihad. I mean, there's competing notions of that. Yeah, I mean, defending I, the faith. Yeah, I I think like it it was um. We have to understand, like, as we said earlier, like this book was written in English and even for us, like English speakers, like native English speakers, 
you know, we had we had we have had like a hard time like reading this book mm-hmm. and like, you know, even like on a second and third reading, you know, it's incredibly dense and the language is very florid and ornate. There are a lot of illusions in the book. The person who issued the fatwa obviously didn't read the book. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. he made a judgment on this book and the writer based on what someone else had told him, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's very much tied to like what was happening in Iran at the time, like Iran's own politics. The country had just come out of a war with Iraq. The country was bankrupt. And the revolution was 10 years old and like clearly failed. The economy was bankrupt. There was no money. There were no relations with Western European countries. Obviously, no relations with America, a lot of sanctions, a lot of poverty still, you know, a lot of people very poor in the country. So I think Khomeini like was worried there was going to be no future for this theocracy he'd created if things kept going the way they were. So I think he saw an opportunity to basically position Iran as this leader of the Islamic world. And a way to do that was to basically go to war against people who were perceived as attacking that religion. Rallying people around a foreign right, threat right, is always a safe right, bit to right. secure your domestic control right. of a society. What, what's that old quote? If you give people something to fight against, they won't need anything to fight for. Right. And so what was uh, Rushdie's defense in, in writing this? Was Did he set out to just piss off a lot of people? What was his intention? I mentioned earlier Edward Said, who was a good friend of, of Rushdie's. And he actually, Rushdie gave Said an advanced copy of the book. And when he gave it to Said, he said something like, oh, the Muslims are going to be very angry about this book. Mm-hmm. Like, they're going to be very angry. A lot of his family were saying that too. Right. And like people who basically said the British government shouldn't protect Rushdie. We shouldn't like put him into like police protection. You know, mm-hmm. they were saying he knew what he was doing. He's a Muslim. He must have known the material he was dealing with and the history he was talking about. He knew that he was going to offend people. Sure. You know? But I don't think his intention was like, well, obviously not to have a death sentence issued against him. He wasn't malignant or right, malicious. Right, but I think he wanted to, as I say, go back to this idea of this cultural renaissance, which was happening 100 years before, to try and, you know, revive that, to have open debate, conversation, discussion mm-hmm. about the religion. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the supporters of Khomeini kind of went off the deep end in England. Right. Yeah, they started right. burning effigies and, right. and books right. and yeah. things. And then, okay, that stirs up images of World right. War Two. Right. People think, okay, they're burning oh, yeah. books, they're going to burn bodies. One of my favorite moments from the, the documentary, there's a BBC documentary called The Satanic Versus Affair. Hmm. And uh, there's this beautiful moment of a televised debate uh, between the Rushdie and someone who supported the the book burnings. Mm. And Rusty says, you know, the thing about burning the book, and by the way, thank you very much for buying the book before burning it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So he was very aware of the heightened publicity and the mm. heightened attention that it was heaping upon him and mm. his work. It's a very fine line, though, because bookstores, they, they don't would, want their windows smashed. Right. So there's mm, many mm. chains. I don't know about the US, but yeah. in the UK, many big chains would not have it on their shelves. Right. Because they were worried this is, about it. This like, is well before yeah. Amazon and online right. sales. So right. Authors definitely depended on, on those kind of venues. Right. I'm curious. I would be curious to know what the sales for this book were. How many copies of that have been time? sold? Or like, like up to now, yeah. Oh, up How many now. copies is it? Yeah, that's a great question. 
So, and then uh, a lot of people came to to Rushdie's defense, right, based mm. on uh, free speech grounds. And yeah, actually, it was interesting. Like the day the fatwa was issued, Rushdie was at the funeral of Bruce Chatwin, who was another British writer. He wrote the book in Patagonia, his account of traveling through Argentina. So basically, Rushdie was, you know, that was his set. Like he was friends with Martin Amos, Ian McEwan, Bruce Chatwin, and of course Christopher Hitchens. People who the new atheists, right? But kind of like, yeah, like late, you know, after like ten years, like towards the late nineties, like Hitchens, like came uh, kind of shifted to the right a bit. Well, it's a well, a lot really like Samuel Huntington's uh, Clash of Civilizations. Oh, right. There's not yeah, going to be right. a reconcile here. We do need right. to have a battle here, mm-hmm. and that came out around the same time mm-hmm. that Clash of Civilizations. Well, and I think that was a response to right. Edward Said's. Orientalism. Orientalism, yeah, right. right. Mm. Yeah, so this this would have been late late eighties, early nineties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what you got to return to the earlier question? It says here the most recent sales figures available are from January nineteen ninety, mm. less than one year after the book's American release. Mm. At this time, the book had sold seven hundred sixty six thousand copies, mm. enough to be the sixth bestseller of nineteen eighty nine. Okay. And the 19th bestseller of the 1980s. I wonder how many copies Midnight's Children and Shame sold. Is this the book that people are buying or are people buying a controversial book? Would yeah. They, had they, they bought like Rushdie's other books because they were sort of works of fiction and they had literary merit. They wanted yeah, to read yeah. the book or are people just buying a very famous book? Just put on their shelf. Yeah, right. I'm yeah. finding it more difficult to find info on Midnight's Children. Yeah, it's okay. It's not perhaps yeah, that, right, perhaps that kind of answers <laughs> the question in a in a roundabout way yeah. because um, you know the Satanic Verses is so in the spotlight right. that this right. is the one that the sales figures are publicly right. available for. Right. You know, Midnight's Children, Shame flew much more under the public's radar. Right. Mm-hmm. So while they were classified as bestsellers, right. I don't know like what the criteria is for something to be called bestsellers, but it seems like if you walk into a bookshop, every second book has that badge that says New York Times, Times bestseller. bestseller yeah. you know? <laughs> it's like you see guns, germs, and steel on everybody's bookshelf. Oh, yeah, and yeah. Yeah. invariably you open it up and it's it's not marked. Right. It's not dog-eared. <laughs> There's no yeah. evidence that it's yeah. ever been read. Yes, right. It's like, this is a kind of a tome. Yeah. Like, to yeah. really plow through it, you've got to yeah. spend some time with it. But, I mean, you can look smart yeah. by having that on your shelf. So. Yeah. Mm. Was it Jared, mm. Jared like Diamond's a, book? Which, if you really want to fuck with someone that has, like, a great bookshelf of, like, quality books. Yeah. Stealth plant, just some some garbage book, just right in the middle of it. Like Twilight. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's yeah. great. It's great. <laughs> Some Stephen King book, yeah. you know. So um, can you go through some of the government implications and responses uh, that came about in this affair? So at the time, this was Margaret Thatcher's government. Margaret Thatcher was the end of her, her reign in the UK. And they didn't like Rushdie. In the book, there's a woman called Mrs. Torture, who is Margaret Thatcher. So they weren't keen on like the idea of protecting this man who had a death sentence against him. And, you know... Margaret Thatcher's idea and her government's idea was that people should be out for themselves, they should look after themselves, mm-hmm. they should resist the government. So they didn't want to like put money into like police protection for this man. 
Mm. They're already navigating some strained relationships mm. with Iran and right that Lebanon too that too you know, yeah, yeah that too uh, yeah there was um, Iran was supposed to be opening up the British like wanted to like invest in the country and have some trading relations with Iran they were worried that protecting Rushdie would upset mm. economic opportunities yet and, by by law or by kind of their their the culture that they had worked so hard to to develop and instill they probably felt obligated to to protect him because he right, was yeah. a british citizen right who had merely written something there wasn't a call to violence right. there wasn't right. a, an outright slandering although the ayatollah obviously saw it as slander right yeah under british law rushdie was golden so they probably quite resentfully took up the duties of mm. Mm. protecting him. I mean, we closed our embassy and we withdrew our ambassador. And yeah, I mean, they did like put Rushdie in police protection. Mm. For how many years? Nine years? Yeah, nine years. He was... He was and just moving scene. around almost daily right. to different houses right. with his kids. Yeah. We, we said that he has been divorced four times. Yeah. This is a lot of strain on a yeah. on any family. Right. Unimaginable. Right. I think he, he appeared like he appeared briefly to say that he was a Muslim. I don't know if that was an actual it, appearance or it was a statement. Uh-huh. He kind of, you know, he, he came out and said, actually, I'm a Muslim and I'm very sorry for what I did. And the Iranian government said, that's not good enough. Mm. <laughs> it, he yeah, he yeah. regretted it almost as soon as he yeah. said it. Yeah. And then later... He said, no, I, I was right. under a lot of pressure right. and right. trying to fix a problem. And... Right. right. And yeah. They, they kind of said, the Iranians said, well, if you like apologize, maybe, maybe we'll rethink what mm. we've, we'll rethink our position. Yeah. And he did. Put this thing and to bed. And they said, no, not good enough. Hard to imagine what would be good enough mm. <laughs> uh, given this situation. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And then there was the yeah, the Japanese oh, yeah, translator who was, killed, who was yeah, murdered. Knifed to death, stabbed. Yeah, I think there was a Norwegian translator as well who was atta- maybe attacked. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was killed. But um, there were a couple of deaths. One can understand yeah. the outrage that you would feel over being attacked. You would feel mm-hmm. attacked, especially if you didn't read it and carefully mm-hmm. think through it. And For people who are very serious about their faith, their holy works, uh, mm-hmm. their books are not, mm-hmm. it's not literature. It's mm. reality, it's truth. Mm. And historians of Islam who are Muslims, who mm. come from within the fold, are dealt with much harsh, a uh, uh, much higher standard applied to them because they're seen as traitors if they are critical of the faith. Whereas right. if like, mm. some Western historian right. comes along and says, right. okay, well, Muhammad was like this, and yeah. like, probably not going to get a fatwa. No, It's right. not going to get read right. nearly as much. But this guy had roots in India, in uh, Karachi, Bombay, Bombay. I mean, oh, uh, Pakistan. Oh, Pakistan, Karachi. Yeah, yeah. Karachi, Karachi. Yeah, Pakistan, no, he yeah, traveled yeah, yeah. to Karachi a lot. Yeah, yeah, right. Mm-hmm. And um, right. right, which the, again, the book like... was going to be Sorry. translated into um, Urdu. Yeah, Urdu. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, Urdu. Yeah, yeah. And 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 the translate the penguin translator read it and he was right. like, uh, no, <laughs> that's a, probably a bad idea. Mm, yeah. So that's when it started to become known. Like, hey, this, right. this is. 
This yeah. Is a, this is a hot cake. Yeah. Came uh, out of like Pakistan, India. They don't take kindly to someone coming from within mm. because they know it's like a whistleblower that sets into all the, the fire alarms of the, right. the jihad, the defense right. of faith. And, and the word jihad is a very loaded term because we right. think instantly of suicide bombers. But right. it, it's debatable. Let's just say it's contested mm. term within the various sects of Islam, yeah. as I've read. But, right. And I mean, I think like... Hopefully we've resolved all the issues and we can put this to bed. Yeah. I mean, this podcast solved everything, I think. Mm. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to add just one small note uh, of opinion of mine. I believe blasphemy, mm. like we see in the satanic verses mm. or like Nietzsche did in uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, that kind of thing, I believe, is not only all right, but necessary for the development of ideas. Right. If you have something that is so influential and so powerful because people believe so strongly in it, it needs to be attacked. You need to cut off the dead weight so that the core of it can stand tall. It's like pruning a tree. And even though I did not finish this book because my personal tastes mm. lie in other areas, mm. I believe a book like this is necessary and good. You see it as pruning a tree, but to extend the metaphor, people that reacted most strongly to this saw it as like trying to cut the tree down at its root. I and get so that. It's, yeah. it's the, the perception of that. I, I see how yeah. it should be healthy. And I think Rushdie definitely came at it from that vein. I think if you disagree with what he said, you're welcome to debate it, to discuss it, to justify your position. It and almost comes out as like a temper tantrum, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. An insecure, petulant child rather mm -hmm. than, okay, stepping back and forming opinions, arguments, debates, going to proper forums and channels right. in a free yeah. society. And like, yeah, I, I believe uh, you are welcome to march in the streets and burn books and do all of that stuff. But you should be able to theoretically write an essay about why you're doing that stuff and what you hope to accomplish. Mm, yeah. Don't just do it because it's the done thing. Yeah. Do it because you have thought it through and you have decided. You have given your ideology informed consent to take the lead on this issue. Yeah, there is a line at which one crosses. It can become hate speech. Holocaust denial, those kind of books don't, in my view, deserve debate. But this kind of book, he's poking a stick in the yeah. eye of a lot of people. Mm. But, but he's it's doing in good it, faith. He's doing it in an informed way. Right, mm. right. And uh, with right. the intention of having a discussion. And yeah. that's what I think upset the, the, the clerics and the, mm -hmm. the leaders who were against the book. As you said earlier, like if it was a Western historian, someone who's outside the culture, yeah. we can like live with that. Like they can go off and like, write what they want but this is someone writing from the i mean all right he was secular but it's still someone coming from that background who kind of knows what they're dealing with who knows the power of the ideas they're dealing with mm. it's like uh um, you know it's like here are the here are the acu acupressure points mm. Mm. i stick a needle mm. right here mm. it's mm. gonna be really effective you know right. i think he yeah, right. i think he knew that right yeah and he might be downplaying right how much he was aware of the possibility right. of this thing. Right. But obviously we can't, it's too conspiratorial to presume that right. he knew. Yeah. 
too much how this would play out in the world. Nobody knows yeah. really. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's it's butterfly effect. Right, it's just the yeah. things things spin out. It's real quite fast. volatile. Yeah. And I think there were Muslim, some Muslims and you know people in countries in the Middle East and in India and in Pakistan who did quietly protest this book and who were upset by this book. But of course, that's not news. Because it it's just not exciting. It's not sexy or glamorous. You know, it's it, not a book it, on fire. Right, right. You know. So we know about all that, but not the other form of protest against the book. Let's close this thing off. Mm. Tie a nice little bow on it. We visited. <laughs> uh, we visited India this week and came Wonderful. to London. And uh, yeah, next time we are going to visit what uh, Columbus thought was India because he was an idiot. Um, we are taking a look at an American book next week or next time. And by that, I mean a real American book, which is a Native American book. Mm -hmm. The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. Is this time uh, I don't have to read it, right? Yeah, you, you you're <laughs> given a pass. pass. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, thanks thanks for joining us, Matthew. You're welcome.